Welcome to the latest USGA Green Section podcast episode. I'm John Petrovsky, host and education manager in the Green Section. This month's guest is Dr. Scott McElroy, professor at Auburn University. Scott gave his insights on a variety of topics, including weed control, data collection, autonomous mowers, and even his collaboration with turf scientists in Italy. Here's our conversation with Dr. Scott McElroy. Dr. Scott McElroy, thanks for joining us. Hope you're doing well. Hope things down in Auburn, Alabama are going well for you. They're going great, John. Great to see you again, talk with you, and uh, it's great to be here. Awesome. We're hoping the football team is shaping up well this year. You got the new head coach coming in, so. You know, I'm hoping that too, John. I'm really, you know, last year was pretty terrible, so really hoping we can recover there. Yeah, I know you get into it and you host those great tailgates at Funches Hall. The SEC West, in a lot of ways, reminds me of like the Big Ten East. It's a lot of a lot of powerhouses to deal with. Yeah. So before we got started, you mentioned that you were down at the Country Club of Birmingham this morning doing some some visiting there. I had the opportunity to spend some time last year working the four ball, supporting Lee McLemore and Bobby and Tim with Chris Hartwiger for the championship, and it was it was a real blast. We had a great time. It's it's such a special place. And it kind of leads me right into my first question for you. Awesome bent grass greens at the Country Club of Birmingham. You go a couple hours south near Auburn, you got Grand National with these phenomenal ultra dwarf greens. What are folks considering when they're picking a grass in this sort of transitional southeast area where really either one could work on greens? What are like the main considerations that go into picking the grass for your greens? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, um, you know, definitely we see a you know a lot more conversion to Bermuda grass greens. And, you know, Grand National Grand National was bent grass and just just a few years ago, and um, you know everybody's kind of going that direction now. And you can see even Ross Bridge, uh, Ross Bridge is going to warm season greens now, so it's still trending in that direction. Um, it used to be for sure that when people were looking at transitioning, you were thinking Bermuda grass was just going to be a lot lower fungicide inputs, uh, potentially lower weed control inputs. Um, but I don't think that's the case now for sure. And because it seems like, at least from a pesticide standpoint, the inputs are going to be equivalent that, but still for us, I think it's that fear of death of greens during the summer. Um, that, that weakness of the, of the bent grass greens that we're going to get. And then also when you think about, you know, I'm a weed scientist. When I think about, Uh, weed management when you think about bermuda greens versus managing bent greens with zoysia surrounds and bermuda surrounds it just becomes a lot simpler you know when you have bermuda surfaces uh, and you have zoysia and bermuda surrounds i mean your your calculus and what you can use and what you can spray around those greens especially when we get into poa control it's going to be a lot easier so i mean a lot of things i bet everybody's different but um, still love a great bent grass greens. Those bent grass greens at at Country Club of Birmingham, you know, I mean, they're just they're phenomenal. It's just, you know, it's just it's it's one of our it's 
probably our top course. Um, definitely one of the top three for sure. And, you know, the two 18 hole courses they got there, they're just, they're just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It was a big hit. The weather really cooperated, but the players were just thrilled with the condition of the greens. It was kind of the start of the show for the four ball last year. And like you said, you got to play in your agronomic program and, and really your grass choice is based on what time of year is most important to your golfers. So that's kind of the way they do it with fairways up here, picking picking a, a species that works best when it's most important. But being a weed scientist, as you mentioned, I think that's a good place to start our conversation today. You're one of the 17 scientists working on the Resist POA project. So Scott, what's sort of your role in the project and what's the overall goal of the Resist POA project? Well, this was a, a big encompassing project that we you know, we embarked on 13 different universities, I think, you know, close to $6 million. And really, it brought a lot of us together to work on a lot of different aspects of of POA annua management. And uh, my aspect, um, so in in this, what everybody did is we collected populations um, within, you know, everybody's different regions that were potentially or suspected resistance. We all did a, a single pass, single treatment screening in order to determine if those populations were collected. I think we collected 1,200, 1,300 populations that were collected across all the different locations, and we tried to spread out to some some different locations too, tried to, that, that weren't involved with the study. After that screening was done, those populations were sent to me for sequencing so we actually did the genetic sequencing to actually determine if it had mutations associated with that resistance so we did a lot of the genetic sequencing to see what was going on what's the what's the causal mechanism and uh, we also looked at diversity you know were these populations connected genetically and to try to come up with an answer of is this one population that's moving around within a region or is it you know multiple points of evolutionary resistance is occurring and they're all occurring simultaneously. One of the things that we found out was like you look at revolver monument, the acetolactate synthase resistance is all the same mutation. I mean, we pretty much ran into the same mutation, like on like everything that presented with resistance to those, it was the same causal mechanism, but they had other genetic differences that, pointed out that, yes, it is indeed different populations that are involving resistance. So everybody's evolving their own resistance, but there's one way that is the best evolutionary path for the plant to get to that resistance mechanism, and it's through that tryptophan to leucine 574 mutation. You know, and the other resistance was the same, Roundup resistance, uh, trizine resistance. Trizine resistance or, or atrazine, simazine, that was interesting because it was like half the populations didn't have a mutation and, and we still to this day don't know exactly how that resistance actually works. The The team that's working on non-target site resistance or like, is it metabolic resistance? Is the plant metabolizing it? They're still working on on that, trying to trying to understand that. Very cool. I I caught the Resist Poa seminar in San Diego. I don't know. I don't know if you did one in Orlando, but it was just it was amazing seeing Dr. Grubbs point out how widespread it really is in the southeast. We could talk about Poa until the cows come home, but I'll just give you one more kind of timely one. Poa Cure Methiozolin. It's a new tool in the toolbox. Are you seeing a lot of folks down in the southeast kind of incorporate that into their weed control program? 
And, and how, how does it work on warm season turf? So one of the things I started working on this year with uh, the Mogu research team out of Korea, SJKU, and we, we talked about um, actually at the GCSAA meeting was the fact that what we're seeing is that the clumpy annual POA, especially you get into situations where it has very limited root development, is not being controlled as well as perennial POA that's in bentgrass greens. Of course, you know, I have my biased view. Other people are going to have their views. But for us, where it's always excelled was controlling perennial POA reptans in bentgrass greens. I mean, nothing better, absolutely. People are wanting to extend control into uh, Bermuda greens. Seems to work well. You get into these surrounds, though. Where you got this clumpy poa, maybe it's small, it doesn't have a lot of roots on it, and you're trying to make application, and it is just really hit or miss. And it's not that it's resistant. We'll take those plants out and we'll spray them in the greenhouse and it kills them. There's something about that environment and how it needs to be absorbed because uh, you just don't get a lot of foliar absorption. You need some root absorption as well in order to maximize control. So you just have this really short exposure window that it's just not doing really well on it. And we're trying to try some different surfactants right now to see if we can get more of it. Maybe we can get it to remain on the leaf a little bit longer. But but right now it's just not working well on those populations. Some people are having success. I'm not going to say it's it's like it's not working at all, but it's it's just hit or miss. And we're just trying to dial that in right now to get it to work more consistently. Goosegrass becoming more and more of a problem. Folks up north are making multiple pre-merge apps, weaning on to Pramazone to follow up as opposed, really leaning on it uh, as opposed to merge product. It's still a big challenge. Is there anything new in the pipeline? Any, any new strategies, products available for folks, especially up north, to kind of deal with goosegrass? First, you know, kind of a two-part question. It is definitely, when it comes to greens management, it is the worst problem right now, in, in my mind. And I wrote a great article five, six, seven years ago, you know, about how goosegrass was really starting to develop as a bad weed problem. And so that was in, in the GCM that I wrote that. But, yeah, it, it is really the, one of the most difficult things right now. We have revolver resistance. Uh, we have we found populations that are resistant to dismiss. So just, you know, just we're getting into that season right now where my lab resistance lab.org you know you can send us populations we test them for 150 dollars a population test them against six modes of action but uh, we found everything we found resistance to everything but to Pramazone and Syncor shout out to my main man Burt McCarty over at Clemson this whole using Syncor in warm season turf applying it watering it in you know really phenomenal control there they, they do have syncor resistant populations in hawaii so i imagine that potential for resistance uh potentially can develop people have to be aware of that don't lean too heavily on that herbicide or you know let it be your only means of control or you're going to see resistance to that develop um when it comes to up north uh i mean i think topramazone um is going to be not sure about the labeling right now. Let me point that out as far as, you know, how, how it can be used. But I, th- I think topramazone is going to be, you know, one of the things that people should begin to lean on. I mean, they still, I mean, you still got, 
you know, low rates of a claim extra, but we have resistance to a claim extra. We have re resistance to fusillade that we've seen as well. You know, moving forward to a Paramazon is going to be the one that, that potentially has got um, possibilities. I was trying to think of another one right now. There's, you know, there's a, there's a FOP herbicide that we've tested for years that if they could just get it to market, that's just completely safe on bent grass greens incredibly safe on bent grass greens and just can wipe out goosegrass and crabgrass and greens in one shot and um but it it's never been able to make it to market i can't figure out why but uh, it'd be nice to have that on the market but we'd probably get resistance to it really quick if it were overused but yeah i mean it, it's continuing to grow as a problem it's not going away anytime soon if anything it's going to continue to get worse as it spreads further north oh, i'm glad i asked that's some great information What's the deal with the dwarf goosegrass? I saw your paper in Crop Science. You were an author on that paper. You got it narrowed down to mutations in a gibberellic acid pathway that's kind of making it form that low-growing growth habit that can persist in greens? Yeah. So it's <laughs> – we found this population. I got it actually – I was over um, speaking at a meeting over in Dallas for golf course superintendents over in Dallas – and um, somebody brought it up and asked me what that was, and I actually brought it back. I think that was like 08 or 09, somewhere around in there. So I've had this population of Texas goosegrass that we've been working with for you know a long time now. And um, so we've been trying to figure out the mechanism. It does seem like there's a mutation in the GA3 oxidase, but it's been really hard to work with that because GA3 oxidase is not – the plant just does not produce a lot of it because GA3 oxidase, what it does is it creates uh, bioactive gibberellins. And so you don't want um, a lot of that in the plant. The, the plant's going to produce it on demand. It's going to degrade it, you know, very quickly as well. So it's really hard to sequence any of that. Having, give, having the goosegrass genome has allowed us to work on that a little more tightly, um, a little more closely. And... Uh, but yeah, we did some comparative studies and it is this unique biotype and this biotype is evolved in different areas as well. Um, and so you're seeing it in Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, it's popping up everywhere now. And one of the unique things that it seems that seed that it produces, something going on with that gibberellin pathway allows it to germinate almost immediately. So goosegrass really has a controlled germination potential so it, you really need for normal goosegrass you need day night cycling so you need like you know high high nights but you need it to cool down in the uh, uh excuse me you need high during the day you need it to cool down at night though so you need that day night cycling big gap in that temperature and when you when you get that like this time of year so it's it's really started to warm up but it still cools down at night it, it triggers it i just snap my fingers but it triggers it you know it's going to start germinating and if you go into a bent grass green a lot of times we don't see that germination till later in a bent grass green because you need actually the canopy to thin down some for the actual cycling in the soil soil due to the summer temperatures before the soil temperature cycling starts to kick up so it doesn't germinate in maybe some cool season grass or bent grass uh, greens later but this dwarf germinates immediately it's it's crazy how how quick it germinates so i mean i've seen it germinate on the panicle itself it will actually germinate and which is really really interesting that it's just it has no dormancy whatsoever Scott, I recently heard Dr. Michael Woods discussing how unnecessary potassium apps can kind of increase dandelions and lawns. I think it was a little fun thing he was doing, but 
is there anything you often see superintendents doing that isn't maybe necessary and might be giving weeds a boost? Like take POA, let's just use annual bluegrass, for example. Beth Gertal and I did some work on phosphorus and other nutrients and pH and stuff related to uh, like POA management. And you, but you can go all the way back to like, was it the green section record? I mean, I pulled papers out from the twenties talking about manipulating nutrients in order to control POA. And, you know, it was known then you drop phosphorus, you know, you lower the pH, you increase iron amounts and all of a sudden your POA, you know, can start to decline. But, you know, also your bent grass or your turf is not very healthy under those conditions as well. The thing I think when it comes to POA as far as drop, dropping phosphorus and is number one, how do you get it low? And then, you know, what's going to be your, your turf stand going to be like, at least for us in the southeast. I mean, it's it's just hard, that manipulation. And, you know, as a weed scientist too, you just – you you change your you you change your management strategies. You change your your agronomic strategies, and all you do is shift from one weed population to another. I mean, you're just you're just trading one for the other is all you're doing. So I mean, that's at least in the southeast. I can tell you that's the case. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about autonomous mowers. I attended Irwan Lecoq's seminar in Orlando and. Last year, we had Bjarni and Erwin on the podcast. Here in the States, still a limited number of courses. I know there's one in Arizona now that's got a few dozen of them. Very few courses in the States are dabbling with robots. But can you give us an overview of kind of where we're at with autonomous mowers in the U.S.? What's available, the limitations of them, and the costs? I think we're finally at the tipping point where it is um, conceivable that a golf course can deploy autonomous mowers as a significant portion of their management on a course. I mean, I think, I think that's the point we're at. I, I think um, you look at the Husqvarna Siora, what they just brought out, with it being able to cover six to eight acres a day in a 24-hour in a period. You know, you're able to deploy that with a GPS RTK station. You're able to geo-reference map those in. Um, I mean, it, it's really amazing, and you can mow fairways, you can mow rough, and and then you you, you pair that with a 550 EPOS autonomous mower from from Husqvarna that can mow green surrounds, it can mow tee box surrounds, you can cover you know probably two and a half acres in a 24 hour period there, the quietness of them, they can run at night. Then you look at you know what Echo has with range pickers, their their mowers as well, uh, what they can deploy. I mean that those things are. You know, those things are a beast. They're a tank, and they can really cover some ground. Still got to do wire burial for those, but they are GPS. You do the wire burial for containment, and uh, you can get, create geo-reference zones inside of those. You know, you can, then you got other companies coming like Nexmo. Nexmo is coming from URS Robotics. It's a drop-and-mow system. So you can actually map out your areas. It runs off of Network RTK that's on cell phone towers. And if you, as long as you got Network RTK signal, you can geo, you can map out these geo-defined zones and drop those um, Nexmo M1s in a zone and tell it to mow, and it'll send you a text when it's done. You know, you come back and pick it up, drop a new battery in if you need to, bring it back to your facility. We are on the cusp of 
the revolution that that we've been promised and been waiting for. The U.S. market is vastly different than than the European market. You know, we're going to be. I mean, we have a very well established golf course, turf grass industry. Um, you know, lots of you know funding at a lot of the courses in order to you know build their you know millions of dollars of equipment that they have so the transition is going to be slow but you know i mean i think everybody needs to start experimenting at this point in time with it start deploying these mowers and you know if they want to talk about autonomous mowers i'm, I'm all about talking about autonomous mowers these days so um and uh yeah i was in Irwin's uh seminar as well and i think that's where we're going you know i mean one of the things he said I, th- I think you remember it was him or somebody said, because I did the uh, Husqvarna tour at GCSAA this year too, and somebody said, you know, we're going to be transitioning more to you have, you know, three or four or five professionals, trained kind of superintendents they are managing different aspects of the automation that potentially can be on a course. And we're, you know, it seems like we're trending that direction. How fast is it going to occur? I mean, that's for the market to for determine, but to determine but i mean i think it's we have that ability now and i i can't say the same thing about last year because until this um this gps rtk stuff hit with the siora until it came in with the echo and then we have a couple more things as soon as they come then then we'll really be able to um deploy these with ease what are the current limitations you could pretty much do everything except the putting green if, if you went to, in the U.S. to whatever distributor you were working with and said, I want to go all in, could you take care of your whole course? You could take care of everything but greens just about right now. Maybe some, some fly mow areas. So, you know, some of the slope mowers like the um, – 535 all-wheel drive unit that Husqvarna has it's still boundary wire so that's a limitation of that one that one can climb some severe slopes I mean I've, yeah it's it's crazy what it can really climb like 40 degree slopes you know really close to 100 percent uh slope um but you it can't climb a slope into a um sand trap I mean it's it's, it's got to be flat um on the it's got to be flat on the bottom, really, so it has some area to turn around. So that's the limitation there. Plus, it needs a GPS RTK station. These RTK station real-time kinematics, and if nobody's ever heard that, you can Google it. But kinematics is just the the physics of motion, of tracking things in movement in space. So you can think about these things that are driving around. Uh, the, the kinematics of it is using real-time data that's coming off both satellite and a station that's there in order to triangulate its position. So um, the, the kinematics of it, it needs to, we need, we need two things to occur there with those RTK station. Number one, all of the stations run off Wi-Fi right now. So they're putting out a Wi-Fi signal uh, at least in the U.S., they're putting out a Wi-Fi signal. Wi-Fi signals are 200 to 300 meters, you know, um, to give you, you know, how far they can reach. We need either one, we need them to daisy chain, where you can bounce from one RTK station to the next, which is supposed to be coming really soon uh, with Husqvarna. And then, or we need it to put out actually a cellular 4G signal from that um, Wi-Fi beacon, from that beacon now, which can reach miles okay so maybe not miles but a mile for sure and that will allow it to get further away from the 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 reference station and that will help that out so that's that's some limitations right there i mean it's still 
Not 100%. Certainly, we don't have putting greens right now. And, and putting greens are – here. one of the things I think is you have autonomous and you have semi-autonomous. And in semi-autonomous, you got to have somebody there with a kill switch. Anything that gets converted, traditional equipment, to autonomous is going to be semi-autonomous, really. Not fully autonomous. Why has autonomous mower technology not gained a stronger foothold in the U.S.? Is it simply that liability? People have pointed to fuel costs in Europe kind of driving some of the adoption. What do you, what do you think is held up U.S. golf courses adopting autonomous mowers uh, at the same pace as courses in Europe? I have my guesses. Just, yeah, I have my guesses just like everybody else. I would say the liability is, is a big deal. Yeah, and that's what I've heard from companies themselves is, is liability. Um, we have a different industry, too. I mean, we have – you look at our courses, the undulation, the complexity, um, and, you know, what we need. Uh, we have, I mean, we have a, just a massive, you know, industry as well when it comes to this well-supported by equipments and distributors and you know, people have their established way of doing things. And if – and there's just not a lot. I mean, when you when you start to insert new equipment that's already doing something that another piece of equipment that you spent a hundred thousand dollars on already does, it's a hard sell, you know, to get somebody to buy to spend seven, eight thousand, thirty thousand dollars on this piece of equipment that's only to, only going to partially supplant what that piece of equipment is already doing. So, you know, to me, that's that's part of the limitation. I mean, there just hasn't been space for it to be inserted. But, you know, I, I think we're, we're hitting on all the – a lot of things at the right time. Labor shortages, um, equipment shortages, an ability to get equipment very quickly, uh, an interest in the technology is actually finally developing to a point right now where people can visualize how you would deploy uh, this technology. And and then you got, you know, distributors that are developing that actually can sell, you know, this technology and people can deploy that, you know, uh, to help them in the deployment of that as well. What's a good way for golf courses interested in autonomous mowers to kind of get started? Range picker or something like that? Um, if if I were talking to a course and I, I walked out on a course, I would kind of look at when you well, you look at the five thirty five all wheel drive unit from Husvarna that climbs really steep slopes. It can go into areas that you're having to fly mow now and can mow those areas. You put the aggressive tires on and it you know, it can it can solve a problem. And so that's the first thing. Which ones actually can solve a problem for you right now? Something you can't get done. It's not just, you know, you've already got a mower of some type. You know, you're just replacing it with a, a, a mower that, yeah, it's great. It does it autonomously, but it basically does the same thing. You look at a range picker, it's the same thing. It actually solves a problem. You know, I mean, you got aggressive... Uh, picker units that are being pushed around that I mean they completely wear the turf out you know they're heavy they compact the ground you got to go out there multiple times you know and and you got but you have the range pickers like the echo range picker I mean it, it solves a problem that people have that entry point allows the the owners, the greens committees the uh, the superintendents, the golfers to actually see, the benefit to deployment of this technology and it, it, it's it's a way of stepping in 
or you know getting a getting an epos unit getting a 550 epos unit for you know six seven thousand dollars getting a uh, a next mode drop and mow system that it's not sitting out there all the time you just put it out and you let it mow for the day and then you come back and pick it up that's a good way to start so to me in order to attract interns to energize the next um, generation of superintendents out there it's it's not about just what you can get done with a mower it's about you know creating buzz and creating interest about what you're doing on a course too and the best way to get started well if you're in the southeast you can call me because i'll talk your ear off about it all the time <laughs> somebody wants to call and talk about robot mowers we've got you know at the Turfgrass research you know we've got echo we've got husqvarna mowers running we've got nexmo i have you know the small gardena and works mowers that i've been using taken them all apart, put them back together, installed them, uninstalled them, reinstalled them, set up Wi-Fi beacons, buried wire, broke wire, repaired wire, you know, so I've done all of it over the past couple of years. And let me give a shout out to some people, because these people do not get enough credit. The Certes people, C-E-R-T-E-S, in Pisa, Italy, Marco Volterani is the lead there, and then you got uh, Simone Magni, the Italians there in Pisa, Italy, they started in on this way before anybody else did. So, you know, I try to act like, you know, maybe I'm not acting like, but I'm talking about, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff that I'm doing. They're the ones who got me interested in it. I remember being over there in 2016, and they were they already had research going. They've published 10 or 12 scientific papers on it, looking at the economics, the energy use, the, how good it makes the turf, and things like that. The folks there have been so far ahead of the curve they were doing robot robot mowers before robot mowers were cool you know they are so far ahead on a lot of this technology and really understanding it and what are the possibilities and they're a phenomenal group to work with so i got to give a shout out to my homies over there and uh in italia for for getting me hooked on this this area yeah and i noticed your linkedin photo now is the husqvarna mow next to the leaning tower of pisa yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they actually deployed on the uh, uh, Miracle Square there. They actually work with the city of Pisa and that whoever manages those to deploy those. And you can walk at the, at the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You can walk from the grass area being mowed autonomously and the one being mowed traditionally. And the other one is loaded with dandelions and chickweed and things like that. You go into the autonomous mode area that's cut every day, and it is... The only thing it's got in it is clover because clover loves autonomous mowing. It makes the leaves really small, gets rid of the flowers, but it's it makes it just into the nicest stand of clover, and it's just clover and ryegrass, so it's a beautiful turf stand. Are you still collaborating with any of the folks over in Pisa at the Center for Research on Turf Grass for Environment and Sport? I, I think the acronym is CERTIS. Cer- yeah, we say CERTIS. They say CERTIS, so I say CERTIS now. Um, yes. Yeah. I have a lot of collaboration with them. Yeah. We just had, a had one of their, um, researchers just come over and visit with me for a couple of weeks. I'm, I, I go over there every year and, uh, continue some collaborations. We've got, uh, economic studies on robot mowers, you know, deploying in, in golf and then in, uh, sports, we have, uh, studies on that. We have looking at centipede grass and St. Augustine grass. Now it's not a big deal, but you know, you have these low end grasses. Can we improve the quality of low end grasses that don't require a lot of fertilizer, water, uh, inputs, pesticide inputs into them? Can we improve those Bahia grass, even improve those stands with autonomous mowers? 
Um, and then, you know, Bermuda grass, when it comes to taller mode Bermuda grass, it, it's, it's, it's just excellent for taller mode Bermuda grass. So rough, rough height, lawn height, Bermuda grass as well. We're doing, you know, just benefits of autonomous mowers and that, that frequent cutting, reducing the clippings. So it's just, we're starting to do really long-term studies to look at, you know, we need to do these three or four or five years. You know, you said Micah would, Micah loves those long studies. I like to talk about those, those long-term studies. So, um, Mike and I finished grad school at the same time. So um, we actually won the the Watson. We won the Watson, uh, the GCSAA award at the same year. Um, but, um, yeah, we need to start doing some long-term studies to look at the benefits over time and really seeing what it does to the turf and what it does to pest and weed populations and things like that. Scott, a while back, I remember you were working with the Sphero Ball, I believe it was called. I saw you give a couple of presentations on that back when I was still a superintendent. You know, superintendents and turf scientists alike have always looked for a way to quantify things that are difficult to measure on putting greens, such as smoothness, trueness. So the USGA, we have our new GS3 Smart Ball, which finally gives folks a way to quantify surface smoothness and trueness, as well as firmness and green speed. But still, data collection, like anything else, you mentioned this earlier, it needs to answer questions, solve a problem, improve efficiency. So what's your take on data collection, and, and how can superintendents put it to use? How can, how can a superintendent best put data collection to use and make it meaningful and something that they're going to stick with, have staying powers? GS3 is, is really cool, but we want, it, we want it to be an important part of superintendents' agronomic programs. You know, working with the Sphero, and we're actually doing more work with the Sphero. We've actually been communicating with uh, the Sphero company quite a bit, working, tweaking on our app. We kind of let it, myself and my uh, business partner there, we, we kind of let that die for a while. Um, but it's, it's made a resurrection a little bit because we've, we've been able to communicate and actually come to some terms with the company to begin working on some things again. I've thought about that as I as I look at the Sphero that's sitting on my desk right now and, and thinking about, because I've thought about this a lot, like what benefit is this? And really, I've always thought, and again, it's just my thought, that really the information is really to the communication to the golfers themselves. You know, explaining to them, giving them where they actually have a number that they can understand what does that mean? Um, because, and being able to talk to people about when they airify and they're able to go out or when they, they're able to have to do some type of cultivation management on the greens or top dressing or things like that. And they can actually take something like a Sphero or the USGA ball that you have and they can quantify that and say, no, it is your thought in your head that it's not true and smooth right now but in actuality the data says that it is and it's these practices are necessary and they are part of the game you know they're um just like you know playing football in the rain and playing baseball on dirt that's how it's meant to be prayed not on plastic dirt um that is dealing with the elements dealing with the management that has to occur on a course, to me, that's part of the game that they have to deal with. It makes it real. 
You know what I mean? But being able to quantify with uh, some type of uh, robotic tool that actually can collect real-time data that can then be given to the golfers to show them that that what their perceived difference is is just their perception and it's not real, to me, that that's a huge value, showing that consistency. Before we get you out of here, I just wanted to give you the opportunity in case there was anything else you'd like to mention or that I didn't cover. It's great to speak with you today, John. Everybody should know that you were my master's student, so the illustrious John Petrovsky uh, up in New Jersey somehow got a master's degree from Auburn University with Dr. Scott McElroy here. You know, it's uh, great to see that you're doing well in life and, and doing great things for the USGA. Great to talk with you again. And, and, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me and wants to talk weeds or robots or robot mowers or, you know, the considerations there, you know, definitely make sure you post my contact information. Feel free to contact me. Glad to talk to anybody or help anybody out. And, you know, let me know what, it, what people need in the future. Thanks, and I'll give you all a plug for Auburn's Turfgrass Research Field Day, which will be July 20th this year. I believe that's correct. So That is correct. Encourage anyone who can make it to attend. There will be a lot of cool stuff going on, including, I'm sure, some autonomous mower demonstrations on the, the plots there off old Shug Jordan. Absolutely. Exactly right. <laughs> Professor Scott McElroy, it's been fun catching up with you, and we'll have to get you back on later maybe for a, a deeper dive into autonomous mowers and Thanks again for your time today. Absolutely, John. Good to talk with you. That's it for this episode of the USGA Green Section Podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep up with our latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication covering all things golf course management.